0: Uh, You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to look at 23 and 24 tonight. Most of the verses that we're going to be covering are going to be in your verse packet. You can use that if you want to. I I don't know of any verse that we're going to cover that's not in that. Just to remind us of where we are in the story so far, we are past the killing of David and Goliath. So just timeline-wise, uh, the most memorable story uh, probably in the in the book of 1 Samuel is that one. We're just a few chapters past that. Remember, Saul has lost the kingdom. Uh, it's been torn away from him and it's been given, uh, well, right now to David and And we're kind of the only ones that know that, although more people in the story are becoming aware and today we're going to see well, Saul is now fully aware of that as well. And um, And At the same time David was given the kingdom, Saul was given craziness and a a demon, basically, to torment him. And so David was brought into the royal court to play a stringed instrument for Saul and to soothe him. That didn't turn out so well as Saul wanted to really kill this guy in his kind of crazy rage. And then once Saul started to become aware that more people were loyal to David and that David was probably next in line to the throne and the one that God had set his affection to, um, Saul became even more enraged and was after David. Now, Jonathan, as we've seen, who is Saul's son and would have been next in line to the throne, has cast his loyalty with David and is, is loyal to David even over his own, his own father. And what we're seeing along the way is that David is, has given, been given the grace of the Lord to just uh, continue on and to spare his life, although... All of this is very difficult on David. It's weighing on him uh, as as much as any burden possibly could weigh on an individual. It's weighing on him. Uh, You'll remember last week, David went to uh, the land of Nob um, where he sought Ahimelech, the high priest, who was looking over the tabernacle, and David was hungry and all Ahimelech had there was his, the showbread, and so he gave him what he had for the showbread out of compassion for David, because David was chief among the military uh, men in Saul's army, and so he gave him the showbread. There was a, a person there um, that saw this and ended up betraying David and telling Saul, hey, I saw David, and Ahimelech, the, high, the, the priest, gave him some of the showbread, and so Saul brought Ahimelech and the priest and all his family in from Nob and had them all killed, and then went back to the town and had the whole town wiped clean uh, because of what had happened to David. And only one person had escaped. We're, I'm going to show you him today. We we saw a little bit of him last week, but a little bit more this week. Um, escaped to to come to David and to let him know. David was brokenhearted and took a, a lot of uh, remorse over it and felt like it was his responsibility because he was there and he, he knew that he shouldn't have trusted this individual uh, because he, he figured he would go and uh, and do that. Well, David is on the run now from Saul, and so he goes to Gath, which is the home of Goliath, with Goliath's sword on his back, and expects, uh, expects the Philistines to take him in, and the Philistines arrest him instead, where David acts like a crazy person, and the king uh, of the Philistines at that time goes uh do I need another crazy person in my, in, my, in my kingdom? Let this guy go, you know, addition by subtraction. And uh, so they send David on his way. And it, it was seen as, as we saw uh, in David's own mind in the two Psalms that we looked at last week, uh, 56 and 34, where David is in prison in 56 and 34, he's let go, and he's praising the Lord for what he's done. And so David takes up his life as an outlaw, at least for what we think is about the next 10 years of his life. He's constantly on the move, no visible means of support. And, of course, Saul has all the priests killed. That's how, the, how it ended last week. So now we get to a furthering of the story of David and Saul... And there becomes a question in 1 Samuel 23 and 24, uh, whose side is God on? And how does one know the will of God? And what we're going to see is, some, is a, a crazy amount of repetition by the author in this passage to help you see the confusion that is there in the situations that are presenting themselves before both David and Saul. And we're going to see some parallels between the two, but the two respond very differently uh, to what they perceive to be the Lord's will. So uh, let's look at at first here, um, while uh, David was safely away from uh, Saul, he was in the land of uh, Keelah, the Philistines, he gets word that the Philistines are raiding the threshing floors of uh, the, the town there in Kelah and making off with a lot of the grain. Now, this is a bad thing, obviously, for the people that are in the town because if you're making off with the grain, uh, they don't have any anything for bread. And so there's obviously the frustration of it. They did the work. They get the crop and they, they go about threshing it. So they're separating wheat from chaff, essentially. They're going to take the good wheat. That's what the threshing floor is for. Then they're going to take the good wheat and they're going to make breads and foods with it and things like that. Well, the Philistines are coming in and they're raiding this. Now, this, this town, Keolah, is on the edge, on sort of the border of Philistine territory and Jewish territory. And probably, I'm, I'm guessing here, but it's, it's a reasonable guess, I think, that they know David is in the area. And there's probably a test here to see the resolve of David. What is he willing to do and how strong is this man? Because uh, you got to think, the Philistines are looking to gain territory. You'll remember that the Philistines are over in more of the western part, mostly in the western part of the land, over towards the Mediterranean Sea. But they have strongholds spread throughout the land. And at any given point, the Philistines are looking to take those strongholds and spread across the land. This is one of the big ca- uh, big problems with, in the book of Judges, with them not getting all the people out of the land like the Lord had told them to is that the Philistines continue to be this thorn in the flesh of the, uh, of the Israelites. God is establishing his kingdom in the land, and what is the charge that's given to Adam and Eve even? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The, what's the charge that's given to the nation of Israel, who is now God's kingdom, uh, or God's the representative of God's kingdom, coming into the land? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, subdue it. Part of the subduing is to drive out all the people that are currently there. They don't do that, much like Adam and Eve don't do that. They fail to do that. And Saul, who is the king, has yet failed to do that, to drive out the Philistines. So they continue to be this pestering uh, force to the Israelites, and that's what they're doing now. They're stealing the grain uh, from the the Jews, and they're, they're hauling off with it. And David gets word of this, and he doesn't like it. So he's going to do something about it. Now, Kelah was a, a, a fortified town in the, here's another word that sounds very similar, the Shephelah of Judah. It looks like Shephelah. It's Shephelah, Shephelah. The, the first E is barely even pronounced. So the Shephelah of Judah. Now, the Shephelah is an area that's in the foothills of the Judean highlands. So you get, if you, if you think with me just for a second, I'm going to leave this up here so you can write it down, and then I'm going to show you a map. But um, if you think Mediterranean Sea, then you've got the lowlands coming from the sea, and then you start to begin to be, so we're we're moving from west to east across the land, okay? Mediterranean Sea, Jordan River. I'm probably doing this backwards. Mediterranean Sea, Jordan River, all right? Lowlands, they slowly build up to a plateau about where um, the, the temple is in Jerusalem, right? Well, as that land begins to build up, there's this, what they call the, the lowlands. They're not like flat. They're hills. They're short hills, foothills, before they actually get to that plateau where Jerusalem and, and all of those, uh, the, the higher cities are. Well, in the, in that area called the Shvelah is where tons of grain and uh, vegetables, and all kinds of things are produced because there's really great valleys there. The altitude's not high enough to kill anything. It's not low enough to, or uh, so low that it's, it's arid. It's, it's a perfect little area to actually um, to uh, grow lots of crops. But It's also an important part to control because if you don't control the Shephelah, then up from the south can come enemies, and that puts them right in the middle of Jerusalem. Uh, So there's like nothing else in between them and Jerusalem. So it functions as kind of like a a border fencing, if you will, um, to sort of keep out a lot of. enemies that would seek to invade. So here's what the town looks like. This is uh, the vast majority. I didn't bring my big pointer, but um, this is the, (laughs) yeah, so so you won't, I won't blind you tonight, but uh, you've got nice big words down here that I've put on here so you can see. Most of the towns that we're going to be talking about tonight are going to be on this map. Um, So you've got the Shvelah, which is right here. You can, you see my little red, tiny little red dot. Um, my cat sees it really good. So, you, you know, uh, just don't anybody try to chase it. All right. Um, but the Shephelah, these little hills that, go, that extend really, I think, about 70 miles, if I remember right, all the way down here into the baptistry. And then uh, Kelah is right up here where the people are kind of stealing and, and stealing grain and things like that. Uh, David is more or less in this area in the caves of Adullam and then uh, we're going to see later on Zip, uh, Ziph, the, the wilderness of Ziph, the wilderness of Maon, and then in gedi by the end of our story. But this is pretty much where David is going to be located in this, in this area. And you'll notice where the Dead Sea is. in uh, gedi by the time he ends up, is right down on the, on the uh, Dead Sea, right at the, the western shore of the Dead Sea. Okay, everybody got a mental image of where all this is? If I need to, I can come back. No big deal. Um, so <clears throat> David is ready to go in and whip the Philistines. But what does David do first? Well, first, he seeks direction from Yahweh. He seeks direction from the Lord. And the Lord tells him, yeah, go ahead and go and, and kill him. You're gonna, I'm going to give him into your hand. But when David tells this to his men his men are like wait a minute are you sure? His men are, are not so sure that the Philistines would be given into uh, into, into their hand. And so David um, goes and seeks Yahweh's direction again. Okay, well if you're not sure let me ask again. All my men are telling me no. And Uh, And the Lord, I felt like, told me yes. And so he goes and he seeks the Lord's counsel one more time. And the Lord says, yes, David, go ahead and and take I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. So he's seeking the Lord's direction. Lord, are the Philistines given into my hand? And the Lord says, yes. His men say, I'm not so sure. He says, Lord, are they given into my hand? Yes, I have given them into your hand. Now, you have to think about this from the men's perspective. They're running from Saul right now. Okay? So the, most, the thing that's most to their advantage is that they stay hidden. You know one thing that won't help you stay hidden? If you start attacking a bunch of people. All right? <laughs> if, you're, if your military starts doing a lot of activity, the spies that are in the land for Saul are going to come and let him know that you're in the area doing things. That tends to make a little bit of a commotion. So the men are hesitant to do this. Are you sure we really need to do this? And David's like, pretty sure. And he goes and asks, and it turns out, yes, they're giving it a hand. Let's, let's read this in First uh, Samuel 23, 2 to 5. Who will read that for us? The Philistines and save Kilya, but David's men said to him, "Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if
1: we go to kill you against the armies of the Philistines?" Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, "Arise, go down to Kilya, for I will give the Philistines into your hand." And David and his men went to Kilya and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants
0: of Kilya. All right, so this seems like a really good thing. Uh, the men are obviously hesitant. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're running from Saul. Are you sure this is what we want to do? And the Lord says, yes, he goes down. Uh, very quickly, it's said to us, uh, he, he, he uh, whips into, into order the Philistines there and he saves the people of Kelah. Ke- uh, and, um, and so everything seems to be pretty good. But at Kelah, there things start to, to turn a little bit because David is hemmed in. He's inside this fortified city and he's walked in through the gate. You gotta come out through the gate. <laughs> he's, he's pinned in. And about that time, remember last time we, we were in, we were we were looking at this, uh, Abiathar the high priest or the priest was the only one that had escaped. When Saul had killed all the priests, and we weren't we told we were told he went to David. We weren't told where he went to David. Here we're told he goes to David there in uh, in uh, Kelah, and he brings uh, a, his ephod with him. Now, what is an ephod? It's a priestly garment, right? It's a it's a linen garment that the priest wears, and on the linen garment. He has what? These these stones uh, that are hanging, more or less, hanging around his neck. And these stones, there's a lot of things that go into the stones we're not even going to spend time on tonight. Uh, there's two stones that are going to become more a little bit important here in just a minute. But the point is, he brings his ephod. Look at 1 Samuel 22, 20, just as a reminder. One of the sons of Ahimelech, uh, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. That was, that was all we were told. And then uh, 1 Samuel 23, verse 6 it says, when Abithar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kelah, uh, he had come down with the ephod in his hand. All right. So he comes down with this ephod in his hand. Um, and I have a picture somewhere here, but uh, obviously it's a little bit further down the road. I thought it was next. Um, but anyway, he comes with this ephod in his hand, and uh, Saul thinks to himself now that Uh, since David is pinned into the city, so what the men thought was going to happen actually happens. Uh, Saul is informed that David has gone down and he's driven out the Philistines uh, in Kelah. And Saul says, this is great. This this is great. The guy who was on the run in the caves and all this, the guy I'm trying to kill, has made himself uh, available to me and he's pinned in to a town. Now I've got it. So what does Saul naturally think? Saul naturally thinks, the Lord has given David into my hand. But you'll notice what Saul does not do. He doesn't seek the Lord to say, have you given him into my hand? He assumes that David has been given into his hand. Uh, scripture passage there, 1 Samuel 23, 7-8. Somebody read that. So you'll notice that with Saul, so David has a presumption. I think, I think the Lord's going to give the Philistines into my hand. He inquires of the Lord twice and is affirmed. Yes, I've given them into your hand. Go down and do it. Saul's, so he goes down and what is, it, what is the result of that? He saves the town. Saul's presumption is that the Lord has given David into his hand. He doesn't inquire of the Lord. And what does his presumption lead to? Destruction of a city. He aims to go down and fight in that city. And if necessary, destroy all the people there in order to get David and his men and to put them to death. So the outcome of the two responses is totally different. You see this, uh, this, this we're going to see this play out several times in, this, in these stories of situations that have presented themselves to these two figures, David and Saul, that almost look too good to be true. And it's apparent that it's the will of the Lord. But only one of them is bold enough to inquire of the Lord whether that's what's going to happen or not. Only one of them actually cares what the Lord thinks in all of this. It's David. Um, so David has the ephod now with him. Now the ephod is something that allows the priest uh, to determine the Lord's will. This is very confusing. This is well, I don't say confusing. This is very strange to most of us. Okay, um, there are two stones on the ephod called urim. Uh, and thumim. This is not what the Mormons will say. Urim and thumim are uh, or what Joseph Smith said that they were. Uh, this, this is. These are two stones for used for uh, casting lots and determining the will of the Lord. The priest has them on his ephod, and so when there's a complica- complex decision that comes before the the people and uh, the priest is, good, is consulted to determine what the will of the Lord is. Often he will take the two, um, I guess we could think of them as like dice, and throw them. Um, one of them, we, we think, one of them is light and one of them is dark, or there's some way on it that uh, when they throw it, what comes up dark is a no and what comes up light is a yes. And um, So the presumption is that What's happening here is that David now has the ephod, and so now with some authority, he can go and inquire of the Lord because he has the priest's ephod, and he's quite confident that the Lord is going to give him an answer by more or less casting lots. And so what does he ask of the Lord in verses 11 and 12? He asks yes or no questions. Uh, just to remind us what the ephod is, look at Exodus uh, 28, um, Thirty, it says, and in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the urim and the thumim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Um, <clears throat> you'll probably also remember that there was a, a, a point in Saul's um, uh, in the story back in chapter fourteen where he was waiting for a priest to get there to inquire of the Lord whether he should go and attack the Philistines. And this is what he was waiting on. So part of the reason it seems like maybe in the first part where the men are questioning David, are you sure that's what the Lord said, is he does not have the ephod at that point. But then once he has the ephod, he's able to ask the Lord a couple of questions. And this is what he, he, he asked him. He, he asked the Lord, okay, if I go down here, if I, if, if I stay here and wait for Saul, will Saul come down here and actually attack this city? And the Lord says, yes, Saul will come down here and attack this city. Okay, if I stay here and I'm willing to fight Saul, will the people of this town give me into Saul's hand? And he says, yes, the people of Kelah, in spite of the fact that you just saved them, will turn you over. Because as it turns out, the people are more or less a little bit weak. You, you could see this already in the Philistines coming in and taking a lot of their food, and they don't do anything about it. David has to come down and save them. Well, Saul's coming down to fight them, and they're basically going to take a step back and go, we don't want anything to do with this. You can take him. You can have him. right? Thanks for the salvation, David, uh, but go to death, um, so he asks the Lord, is this what you're going you're gonna to do? Are you gonna, uh, is this what's going to happen? The Lord says yes on both accounts. And so David knows then to take his men and to leave the city. And he does with safe passage. And so in the process of seeking out the Lord, the Lord actually tells him what's going to happen so that David will remain safe. And what becomes very apparent in all of this is that though Saul is going to do his best... To pursue and kill David. The Lord has set his affection on David. He has anointed him king over Israel. And in spite of any activity that Saul is going to put forth, any effort that he's going to put forth to try to kill David, he's not going to be successful. Because every time David seeks the Lord's counsel, and every time the Lord tells him exactly what's going to happen, so David remains safe. Uh, look at 23.14. David remained in the strongholds of the wil- in the wilderness. He escapes in the stronghold of the wilderness, the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Saul could have learned something that seeking the Lord's counsel would have saved him a lot of energy. It seems as though the Lord's pretty open-handed. He's telling David what he's going to do. And if Saul had asked, Lord, have you given David into my hand? What do you think the Lord would have said? No. But it's obvious Saul doesn't care. And it turns out that if it's the Lord's will, it cannot be thwarted. Um Saul is, is finding this out I think the hard way. James, did you have a question? You just said Albert, the safest place to be is in God's will. Yeah. Because if he spoke the universe into existence, yeah. I think he can kind of handle those. Yeah. Little skirmishes here and there, don't you think? Yeah. What is a spirit what we desire, what we want it, but it's in his will, like you
1: say his word is not going to come
0: back Right. If he said his affection to David there's nothing that's gonna that's gonna thwart that, and it, it is funny. He speaks the universe into existence. What is a spear, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what is what is a man's spear? Um, so David goes into this. Oh, before we do that, before we go to that, this would be a, a picture of the ephod if you can see this. Uh, there's a lot of things on here that we're not even talking about. Um, you see the there's the linen uh, the linen part of the ephod, which is a just this little multicolored garment here. And then you've got the breastplate of part of the ephod with the u- uh, urim and the thumim. Or it could be urim and thumim. I'm not sure which order it was, but, uh, uh, but are up here. And then you have the little apps that are on the ephod. Oh, that's weird. Like iPhone. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. It's uh, <laughs> not. <laughs> but little uh, <laughs> 12 stones that are on the, the ephod. The... Are you sure that's Thanos' get up? Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, so you have, you have all of this. This is what David is waiting on, uh, basically, is, is here. Now, this is reserved for the priest. David puts it on. David is a prophet. He is uh, obviously a priest in that he eats from the priestly table. He wears the priestly garments. He seeks out the Lord's will like a priest. Um, and he is a king as well, which is, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. It reminds me of someone else. Um, okay, so David turns and he, he flees there and he goes into the, uh, the desert of Ziph, which sounds like an area in a Dr. Seuss book, but he goes into the desert of Ziph, and, which is just southeast of, uh, of Hebron. Um, and it, what's interesting is that everywhere he turns, all he finds are traitors. So we, we see this, this story is just crazy. And and all it's proving over and over and over again is that the Lord is protecting David because literally everyone is against him. It, it, it actually doesn't seem like anyone is for him. And some of this treachery that's happening, not least of which in Ziph, but in other places as well, is it, sort of proving that people are not loyal to David. They don't see him as the new king. They, uh, they certainly don't uh, recognize any authority that he has. And they're quite happy to continue to acknowledge, uh, to acknowledge Saul as king. Now think about the time period that we're in, though. The time period that we're in uh, is a lot like football. If you win, God is with you. If you lose, he's not. <laughs> right? If you win, you get to keep your job. If you lose, you don't. Right? Well... It seems like in spite of the number of times that David is turned over, he continues to win. And in spite of the number of times Saul seeks after him, Saul continues to lose. And yet Saul continues to gain in favor with the people. The people continue to suck up to Saul and continue to turn David over. So it is, it's almost like the Lord has turned all the hearts of everyone against David and how could you, if you're David, not feel as though your entire world is collapsing? Literally everyone is against you. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you feel like, even whether it's real or not, you feel like everyone is against you. It's the most miserable place you can be because you, you have no idea what's going to happen next. And, and there's, it's almost like there's no feeling of hope. Well, David's in that situation, squarely in the middle of it. So when you read the Psalms, you can get an idea of, of how he's feeling because literally it's like the whole, all the world is turned against him. Well, the, the desert of Ziph, they're gonna, the Ziphites are going to betray him twice before this is all over. Now, they're going to betray him once in our story, and then we're going to get to the second time in a couple of weeks, but they're going to betray him twice before it's over. And so uh, in the midst of all of this, David's being betrayed, turned over to his people. They're going, the, the people in Ziph are going to Saul and they're going, hey, did you know that, that David's in our area? You need to come down and take care of him. In the midst of all that, for whatever reason, Jonathan gets this stirring in his heart, I suppose, to go find David. Now, you remember Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan has cast his... His lot, if you will, in with David. Has set his affection on David. His loyalty is with David. This, what we're about to see with Jonathan, is the last time we'll see Jonathan before he dies. Jonathan, for whatever reason, gets this stirring, in the midst of all the betrayal, in the midst of all the things, he gets this stirring in his heart to go find David. We're not told how he finds David Because nobody else seems to be able to find David unless maybe, I don't know, he heard from the Ziphites or something like that. But somehow he knows where David is and he goes to find him. And as one author puts it, he's there to put David's hand into God's hand. And you'll see this here in this passage in 1 Samuel 23, uh, 15 to 18. Somebody read that out loud for us.
1: David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and David and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, "Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel." And I shall be next to you. Saul, my father also knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at, at Horish, and Jonathan went home.:
0: I don't know if you, you've ever had something like that happen, or you've ever had a friend like that who, uh, in the midst of chaos, is the one that's coming in to be the voice of reason and to remind you of God's promises. That's a special person. That's a really special person. And when things are going really bad and when you're really frustrated, it doesn't matter how many successes you've had in the past. None of that matters. It doesn't even matter how many successes there actually are in the present. David has not been touched. He's had spears thrown at him and they've missed. The king's son has cast his, his loyalty on David. The king has sought him out and has been turned aside at every turn and God has warned him and got him out of there and he's, he's had the, the Philistines have been delivered into David's hand. He's been delivered out of prison and he walks out singing God's praises in Psalm 34 and yet no matter, no matter what successes you have, The king of the land is against you and all the people are betraying you. You're hiding in cave after cave and you can't hardly sleep. That's a desperate feeling. So imagine what it's like in the midst of all that to have Jonathan come in and say, remember what's true. The Lord has set His affection on you. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And you know what? Saul knows it. Saul knows this. It puts Saul's actions in a whole new light. It's as if Jonathan is saying, he's jealous and he's not gonna win. So just relax, it's okay. That does not mean, by the way, that everything's going to be easy at all. That's not what it means. Things are actually going to get really bad before they get better. And yet he's there as a reminder. What gives him the nerve to leave his father's side, risk his own life, and go after David? Find him to remind David of this. I guess it's the Lord. That's the only thing I can say. So the Ziphites are loyalists, loyalists to Saul. They they turn him over uh, twice, and they tell him where they tell Saul where David is. And Saul hears where he is, and he says, "Look, this guy's a shifty creature. All right, <laughs> I've chased this guy around for a long time. I believe you that he's there." But here's what I want you to do. I need you to go down there and just scout out the area and just watch his behavior. Uh, there, was, there was all these reports when we, before we got uh, Osama bin Laden that um, we watched him in that house for like a long time. It was like a year or something like that, that we knew where he was before we ever did anything. And they were just monitoring. They monitored who went out in the house, who went out of the house, what the daily routines are, so that they had everybody's habits down. They knew everybody's schedule before they ever did anything. Which is, which is crazy. That's essentially what Saul is asking for. If Saul had a drone, he would have flown it over the area just to monitor for a long time where David was because he knows how shifty this guy is and he's, he's tried to get him, but he absolutely couldn't. And so uh, David and Saul are wandering around. David gets wind where Saul is and he's coming for him. And David ends up on one side of a mountain and Saul ends up on the other side of the mountain and Saul's trying to track him down. And everywhere David goes, Saul moves around. And so they're like running around a table from each other. And right in the midst of, uh, of David being within his grasp, within the grasp of Saul, uh, Saul gets word from back home, hey, The Philistines have attacked back home. And you have to understand how close Saul is to David at that moment. He's literally on the other side of a hill from him. We're not talking about in high areas. We're talking about in a low area. He's on the other side of a hill. This is the closest Saul has been to David in a long time. David is within the grasp of Saul. And right then, the Philistines decide to attack back home. Saul gets word of this and he has to leave. Coincidence? I'll leave it for you to decide. Uh, The answer is no. So if you decided anything else, you were wrong. (laughs) Uh, So Saul misses yet again. And we go into chapter 24, and Saul gets finished with the Philistines, and he returns. He learns that David has now fled down to En Gedi. En Gedi? Is on the western shore of the Dead Sea. You can go there today, and if you're going with me to Israel, we will go there. Hallelujah! Uh, <laughs> we will see uh, the caves at En Gedi. Uh, but there are the caves are still there, and uh, and actually, you can buy a torn piece of Saul's robe there if you want to. Uh, they still have it. Um, yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> for nine ninety five too, it's a good price uh, for Saul's robe, considering. Uh, but but uh, so uh, so they're down in En Saul learns that David is down in En Gedi again. Uh, he goes down after him, and he is uh, they're they're looking around for him, and and Saul uh, decides to relieve himself, and so he goes inside a cave, and uh, it, he doesn't know this. David and his men are in the cave, uh, deep, deep in the cave. And so Saul is in there using the bathroom. Uh, look at 1 Samuel uh, 24, 3-7. to And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Pay attention to this, pay attention to this, what his men say. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. Be careful when you speak on behalf of the Lord, by the way. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Listen to this. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David sees Saul is in his hands. It seems apparent that what the Lord has done here is delivered Saul into his hand, yet David does not consult the Lord about this. He's acting a little bit like Saul and listening to his men, and he goes and cuts off a corner of his robe, I suppose just to be cocky. And at the point when he did this, he was convicted. I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to raise a finger against the Lord's anointed. If the Lord has put him in this place, then the Lord is going to have to remove him, not me. Nor should anybody else in all of Israel touch the Lord's anointed. You know how Saul's going to die? Suicide. No one is going to touch the Lord's anointed. The Lord is going to take him out. And David... Remarkably, he's content to wait. He's content to wait. No matter how much suffering that that may mean. And so David's godly instincts overcome him. Oh, that's in his hand. Sorry, I missed that one. David's godly instincts overcome him, overcome his human instincts, and he decides that he is not going to touch the Lord's anointed and that Yahweh himself would have to remove him and so, he, and so at that point, he remains the anointed of Yahweh. So that's godly instincts and human instincts. And in his hands. The next one is that right there. You're noticing a theme of this into his hand, into his hand, into his hand. How is it that the people in the story know the will of God? Well, first, they know it by... The Lord's word. David knows that Saul is the Lord's anointed. Why? Because the Lord anointed him. The Lord put his word on Saul that he's the king. They know it by conviction. The, the men tell David, this is the day. Look at this. The signs are obvious. Look at this. He's in a cave where we are. He didn't even know we're here. You could sneak up behind him and kill him. Give him a shiv right in the ribs. He's not exactly in the position to do anything about it. You could get him. But David is convicted by the Lord's word. You see, in spite of the signs that are in front of you? If the Lord's word says one thing, it doesn't matter what the signs say. There's a lot of things I've convinced myself were true. This sign and this sign and this sign all point to this conclusion. But if it contradicts what the word says, what God's word says, it's a false sign. God isn't the only one capable of giving you signs, by the way. In fact, in Revelation, you see the beast coming along with signs and wonders um, and deceives many people. So what David decides is that if anything's going to happen, God is going to be the one to bring vengeance. He actually tells Saul this. So he has this corner of Saul's robe. Saul leaves the cave, and David waits till he gets a long way off, and he walks out of the cave, and he says, Hey, Saul, Saul turns around, realizes what just happened. Oh my goodness. He says, he holds up the corner of his robe and he says, Why do you want to kill me? I could have killed you and I didn't. I don't want to kill you. I've never wanted to kill you. I don't want your position. I've never wanted that. And Saul says, Oh my goodness, I'm so stupid. How could I, how could I have done this? I repent and sackcloth and ashes. He doesn't really say all that, but he he does repent. Like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. It's fine, you go your way, I'll go my way. Never the twain shall meet. Saul turns on his word, lickety-split nearly. But in the meantime, he he repents, and David is more or less free. But what David says in uh, 1 Samuel 24, verse 12, the very last is this, and I I think it's poignant. May the Lord judge... Between me and you, may the Lord avenge me against you. But my sh- my hand shall not be against you. David is convinced that he will not convict. He he will not go against the word of the Lord. He is convicted by the word of the Lord. That is the Lord's anointed. I won't do it. I won't. I won't go against God's word. And so leaving that for God to decide. That's what he says. Saul repented. He doesn't take Saul for his, at his word. He's no fool. David's going to run again and Saul's going to chase him again. He's no fool. He doesn't trust Saul as far as he can throw him. But what does he do about it? Does he say, well, okay, well, if you throw your spear at me one more time, I'm going to defend myself. He doesn't say that either. He says, look, if anybody's going to have vengeance here, it's going to be the Lord. I'll leave it for him to decide. So it seems as though the way we determine the will of the Lord is patience. We wait. And we wait. And when you say, well, I've run out of patience. That's not patience. You continue to wait. It doesn't mean you're not active. It doesn't mean you don't do the things that are prudent and wise. Of course you do those things. In the same way, you don't say, well, I was waiting on the Lord to provide me a retirement, so I didn't save a dime. That doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. That's not wise. But when it comes to these very complex decisions, these very complicated things, do you take it into your own hands, interpreting the signs and the tea leaves? Or do you wait for the Lord to work it out and to make it a ton more obvious than it is? David's choosing the latter. Questions? I've answered them all, maybe. Good, Thomas. Uh, So I'm in charge of teaching
1: a uh, a class that's involved with basically leadership skills. Yeah. Okay. Uh, leader. One of the hot topics right now we're talking about is reaction versus proaction. I'm trying to teach that without a spiritual background. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the question comes into, and maybe even more of a statement, that pause is very important, but sometimes we as humans just don't have that, and we react. How can we assure that that's going to be God's action in a very important moment? Because sometimes it's a very short moment, And and I know that's kind
0: of deep to ask, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um... So I, I can't remember who it was now that I'm, I'm trying to think of this. Uh, it was a, a, an author somewhere. It um, was, was talking about determining the will of the Lord in, in situations. And uh, one of the criteria was um, higher morality, which, which is one of them a, a, lower, uh, a lower in holiness than the other, in which case throw it out and pursue, pursue holiness. Um, that's that one's pretty easy, I think. Um, the other is when you, uh, which is a phrase that a professor of mine used all the time. Uh, when determining the will of the Lord, you're faced with a choice, and neither one of them is sin. Pick one, and that is the Lord's will, uh, <laughs> which is a great way to do it. <laughs> because <laughs> when you're faced with a decision, and neither one of them is sin. Uh, you choose one, and it's obvious that was the Lord's will because it happened, okay? Um, so the, what David is convicted by in this story is that what, he, what looked to be uh, the Lord's will was against Scripture. We, we would say Scripture. He would say against prophecy or declaration of the prophet. So what he was about to do was against Samuel's own action of anointing Saul and so it was determined by him that was not holiness. And so he put it away. Oftentimes we'll know this by conviction. Sometimes we'll know this by conviction. That was not a holy action or that would not be a holy action. Many more times we know this by Scripture itself, that we go to Scripture uh, and we, can say, we say, you know, when people come, come to me and they say, well, I knew this was the Lord's will because look at all these signs, I, I hesitate. That doesn't, I don't, I, that doesn't communicate to me. So I think it's best to say, is one of them sin? If that case, throw it out. If not, let's look at the scriptures. Is there any indication that we get that, um, that one is a, is, a, is a better option in accordance with what God has revealed in his word? Because what David is convicted by and what we should be convicted by as well is he never contradicts his word. I've had people um, talk to me about divorce and, and they're convinced that this is God's will and uh, you know divorce is hard divorce is a hard thing and i'm not meaning to bring up anybody's you know past or anything like that that's it's a hard it's a hard thing but i you he doesn't con- contradict his word and and so i just cannot be convinced that that's what he's doing in any case no matter what the signs are pointing to um so uh you know it, there's, there's lots of times in our lives where we do that, where we'll, we'll look at, well, it, all the signs are pointing this way, but um, we have to be driven by the word and we have to be creatures of the word. It needs to ooze out of our pores so that when we face faced with decisions, that's, that's what we constantly think about is his word in this matter, you know. <clears throat> yeah, and the way and the and the way we find out that that was the that was the wrong thing is uh, is we're disciplined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James. Yeah.
1: It is
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you not read? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time in, in your word. And, and I pray more than anything that all of us, myself included, become creatures of your word, that our desire is that it oozes out of our pores, that all we think about is your word and how it applies to us. And all we think about is bringing it to bear on any conversation or any decision that we have to make, that we're faced with. But man, that is hard. And we fail, I fail so much at doing that, applying your word to situations that I'm in. And we don't do it perfectly, so forgive us. May we be resolved to encounter you and to know you and to grow more and more in knowledge of you through your word. That we may be changed people not just because of printed words on a page, but because we've encountered your word itself, which gives life. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.